Conversate Trans is an intergenerational podcast series exploring trans culture. The podcast, developed by the Sterlings Collective with funding from Create in collaboration with Tenny, with continued participation of the trans community, explores invisible histories and culture through intergenerational dialogue and archival materials. Having worked closely with members of the trans community over the last two years, the collective recognized the need for intergenerational dialogue and community care for trans people, and this podcast aims to be one part of this. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Alexandra Hall. I'm Jules, and I'm the other co-host of this podcast. And today we have Sarah Phillips with us. Sarah, would you like to say hello? Hi, Jules and Alex. Thank you for having me. Sarah Phillips, the chair of Tenny, and you're recently elected to the Women's Board of Ireland. Is that right? That's correct. The Women's Council, uh, National Women's Council of Ireland, yes. National Women's Council. And uh, what object did you bring today to talk about? Um, I brought a vinyl record uh, by a band called the Tom Robinson Band, and it's called Power in the Darkness. Um, I can't really show it to you, obviously, but I'll show it to both of you, uh, which uh, I suppose has a huge significance, I suppose, in my own life. Um, so I suppose this this record dates back to 1978, many, 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 many years ago. Um, it is from a band who most people know having one hit, uh, a one hit wonder, but actually are more better known to most of us as a very activist band, um, specifically in around the late 70s uh, of uh, in Britain. They talk about many different aspects of uh, poverty, employment, um kind of conservatism, but also around gay rights and, and inclusivity. Um, and I got involved kind of very early on at, you know, around late 76, early 77, when they started coming out, I was listening to their music. Um, and they used to have, um, consistently, they would have, um, um, uh, newsletters going out that they Xeroxed back in the day, which was literally meant having to like a photocopier. Um, and they would post these out, um, on a lot of the activist work that they did around trying to free political prisoners, um, trying to work towards women's rights, work, work towards, uh, gay rights, etc. So it was something that I really, I suppose, spoke to me at the time. Um, but also then the music was actually brilliant as well. Um, and this is of a time when, uh, punk music was starting to come to the fore um, for all of us back then. This is again, like I was 16, 17 years of age. And uh, yeah, it was it was really an important time for me. I think it was like, and it still resonates today, a lot of the, that music and a lot of those, those uh, themes, I suppose, in the work that I do or activism that I do, whether it's on trans community. Is, is that kind of, was that what kind of inspired you to start getting into activism? Uh, it, it was, I think the first, the kind of first thing that, uh, first time I think I ever kind of stepped up and did anything, um, was actually a, which something that the, that Tom Robinson himself was involved with heavily was actually a campaign in, in late 77 and early 78 in Britain called Rock Against Racism, which was a, there was a lot of negativity going around, um, around uh britain around racism there was a lot of racism at that time and a number of individuals decided they wanted to do something about it because again a lot of rock music was very much based on uh you know uh, black culture for instance uh whether it was the blues or whether it was um you know reggae at the time but they they decided they wanted to do something and there was the rise of what was known as the national front in britain so they wanted to create a movement that brought not just the music, but also uh, individuals together. And they, they had a number of marches in 78 and and they brought together some really great bands to actually, and also a lot of good speeches, etc. So I made the choice along with a friend of mine. Uh, we, we got on a boat on, on Friday, very early Friday morning in Dublin, and we travelled across Britain on the train uh, to go to to this march and eventually go to that music and then come home again on Sunday, we didn't even book anywhere for the two of us to stay. We just we literally uh, slept kind of 
stayed awake most of the time, slept in the train station on the way home, like oh god, um, slept on the train, slept on the on the boat. But it was very much we felt it was something we should be at, um, because it spoke to a lot of the way we felt, um, and it spoke a lot to, you know, how in lots of ways I was brought up, um, you know, around treating everybody equally and and making sure that everybody had equal opportunity. So. Yeah, it, it it kind of was what kicked off my activism in a way. It took me a long time then to start obviously being active for the trans community, but um after that, but it did it did spur me on at which point I suppose, you know, I, I became very active looking at, you know, being a member of Amnesty and watching what they're doing and going on marches and doing various things like that. So yeah, it was it, I mean this is one of the this band is probably responsible for a lot of that, um, for actually standing up and doing something about it. That's like, yeah, that's really cool. Like, so, I don't know, it, it's really cool to have that. Like, I was so inspired that, like, you know, I traveled across the sea and across the land to get to this place <laughs> to engage. Um, I think, like, music can really be so moving. And, like, I think, like, so many communities, I, I think especially, like, for, like, alternative kind of communities, music is always, like, you know, goth culture, punk culture, those kind of things. And there's often been, I think, I feel, I feel a very big LGBT link to those things because they're always very against the grain right yeah i mean i think i think like music has been at all points throughout history has had some um i suppose you know it makes some impression on on civil movements at any particular time you know um, you know, whether it's the rebelliousness of teens after the war, after World War Two, you know, and coming into the fifties with somebody like Elvis and in the States and, and that whole idea of, or, or the Beatles in the sixties and these sort of things, they don't see, we don't see them now, but at the time these were huge, uh, in, in some ways political movements because teenagers were no longer, um, you know, being, kind of to be you know to be seen and not heard they were now vocal they now had pocket money they could spend money on what they wanted they now had a there was a market for them so therefore they they had a voice and i think you know when it comes to the late 70s the punk movement i think specifically at that stage has a much louder voice it has a it actually has had more probably effect than the actual moment because it it doesn't last very long it lasts probably no more than about two years really um at its height and yet it has had a lasting effect on on society and attitudes further you know as we move on and similarly as we as we've come on in the last 40 years or 50 years it's exactly the same i think music has always been there it's it's an opportunity to speak and say what you want and put your story out there for somebody to be critical i mean you know this particular album you know has a huge pivotal moment in my own life because, you know, in, in mid-78, uh, this band played in UCD, um, at which I went to see them. And, you know, at that point in time, people accessing UCD were of a very particular class in Ireland. And, and not that we have much difference in classes, but it was very much accessing university back then. You know, very few people got scholarships. You needed to have your parents who needed to be able to afford to go send you to it. I wasn't going to UCD, but we were able to go to the gig. And I stood at that gig watching predominantly 600 uh, predominantly white middle class males scream at the top of their voice, singing, sing if you're glad to be gay, when which is predates by nearly 15 years the decriminalization of homosexuality. It spurred me to the point that Two days later, I sat in front of my dad at 10 o'clock at night on a Friday night and told him that I thought I was a girl, you know, because I needed it. It made me think that actually I needed to do something about it. And and while, OK, that conversation didn't go badly, you know, it kind of went, you know, oh, look, it's a phase you're going through and maybe you need to get on with it. But but the point was, that, how's that phase, Sarah, how's that phase going for you now? I'm still working on it. You know, um, yeah, it's it's been a long it's been a long kind of journey, but there's still a lot of work to do there. You know, um, phase for like when did you say that was? Nineteen seventy eight. Nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, yeah, just a day or two ago. So like, I just like for it's just a phase last forty two <laughs> years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, that's that is true. Uh, I think 
because things like that when you go somewhere and you have like experiences like you were saying about everyone singing glad to be gay um that can be really like just really changing right it can really spur you to action and kind of um i think that's like amazing thing about music it can really like bring things out in people and ideas or like emotions i guess that's what you were saying but um yeah, definitely. And I mean, look, you know, from the, from that point of view, it's not just about this band or any other band. I mean, you know, I think music speaks loudly in my, in my life completely with whatever about activism. You know, I, everything, if I, without music, I don't think my life would be full. Um, you know, I collect music, whether it's vinyl or CDs or whether it's, um, you know, songs, whether I write songs or play the guitar or in the past perform, you know, Music is what sustains me. Um, and that's all types of music, whether it's, you know, music that reflects my activism or, and, and whether it's, you know, radical music or whether it's just even downright pure, happy pop sometimes or even classical music. Um, you know, but I do like some people who in lots of ways are slightly vocal and will speak out within their music. But I think it, it has that resonance for me that. You know, it inflicts itself in every part of my life, no matter what it does. Um, and I think I've always said, if it's one thing I ever want to pass on to my kids, I don't won't have much to be passing on to them at the end. But um, if it's if it's one thing, is the love of music. Did you bring your kids to any like punk concerts when they were younger? Um, no, I've been, I've been. Um, I did bring them to concerts. There's no doubt about that. I brought them to lots and lots of contact concerts. Um, and I do, you know, I try to make sure that they did have the opportunity to go to concerts. Um, you know, my, my two boys are, are mad into their music and they like going to gigs and they like some of the stuff I like and they like some of the stuff, um, you know, that they like. But, you know, I've, I've tried to make sure that they always had those opportunities in the past and the same with my daughter. Um, God, I remember bringing my daughter when she was twelve to see Avril Lavigne with two of her friends, and oh, and trying to and trying to kind of sit sit among three young three young twelve year olds, kind of listening to Avril Lavigne, but also you know bringing my my um, my two lads to gigs. I mean, we've we've got gig tickets for for the Frames next year, and I'm hoping to see them, which is my favorite band. Um, that was postponed this year, but yeah, definitely. Uh, I would have brought them to a lot of different gigs, but, you know, I also like them to experience them on their own without me necessarily being there because it's not about me inflicting my musical choice on them. It's more about them having the opportunity to find their musical taste, um, you know, and, and I think that's what's important. It's about them finding what they like rather than necessarily me kind of telling them what to go to. Um, you know, so that is, and that's the same here with music. I, I, I've always allowed them, I've got quite a large music collection. I've always allowed them to say, look, just, you know, explore it, have a look and see what you think, have a look and see what, um, what might, what you might like. And if, if you find somebody of interest, pass it on because I might like it, you know, and share it because that's what, that's what it's about. I love when you find, like, I, I recently found, um, you know, Blue Oyster Cult. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Don't fear amazing. the reaper. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> that's that's it's such a good song. I can't believe I've never heard that before. Um, but there are somebody... there are so many bands out there and so much music in the oh, past, yeah. even never mind now, but in the past that that just get lost, especially for this this generation or previous generations, even. So sometimes it's always about also going back and looking for for music, uh, you know, to. Um, to find because there's such a huge source of enjoyment, you know. And you were you were in a band before? Oh God, <laughs> um, would I call it a band? Yes, I would call it a band. I suppose. Yeah, we we were. I was in a band. Well, I was in two bands, but one back in when I was in the in my teens, um, a punk band which was known as K Scope, which was a, uh, a short lived venture. But it was um, it was yes, it was. The word kaleidoscope without the color in it, that's the way we thought about it. So it was K-scope, um, if you know what a kaleidoscope is. But oh. it was a punk band. Um, that's cool. But more recently, in, in between 2008 and 2011, I was part of a band with another trans woman called Diana Alexandria, who's now in a band called Dear Bertrand. You should check them out. They're really good. Um, what, what was that band? Dear Bertrand. 
Dear Bertrand. No, dear Bertrand. So as in D-E-A-R, dear Bertrand, B-E-R-T-R-A-N-D. Um, they're really good. Um, but De- uh, Deanna was in a band with me called The Lady Gardeners of Yore. Um, and uh, yeah, we were, we wrote all our own music, all our own whatever. I can't say we were the greatest performer band, but we always gave entertainment we wrote all our own songs. I think the songs were pretty good. It was just that maybe I wasn't exactly the greatest guitar player. She's a really good singer, but you know, maybe they, we could have been a bit tighter from time to time, but, um, but yeah, that, that was, uh, I like writing music and I like writing songs and I write a lot of lyrics. So, um, but also sometimes, you know, that also helps me reflect my own trans history as well. And also my, my own life. Oh, that's really cool to like, to write, I guess, music about trans history in particular. That's mm. like a really cool idea. I never really thought about something like that. So I don't think I've ever heard music in that kind of way. There, it's kind of reflecting on history, you know. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, I think I think it's it's a difficult place to go because, you know, you can talk about, you know, you can talk about your own story a lot. It's a lot easier to do, but trying to then write kind of songs that kind of reflect what it was like to be trans maybe 50 years ago or even 20 years ago it's it's a lot more difficult to kind of reflect it on in a way maybe that that is interesting so I mean I've always found it difficult but I've I've you know attempted to do it from time to time so um, and then also if I look back on songs that I wrote 20 or 30 years ago or even 40 years ago that reflected my life at that time, albeit that I wasn't talking about specifically being trans, but clearly it was coming from a spe- perspective that I knew I was trans, you know, or I knew that I was different. So yeah, I, I suppose from that perspective, it, it it's an interesting kind of place to be, you know? Yeah, I get you. Like, even if it's not intentional, it's kind of like parts of yourself come out through the music. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can write specific songs you know, and try to work them or they just automatically come out. I mean, you know, as part of as part of the Lady Gardeners, we had a song called The Quiet Girl. You know, it was built on a on a poem that I'd written called The Quiet Girl. And there is a clear understanding or a clear kind of vision in that, albeit that when I was writing it, I wasn't writing about myself. But when I actually reflected on it, uh, you know, and even in conversation when we were looking to put music to it, you know, with, with Deanna, they, it was clearly was about me. It clearly was about, you know, what I was going through when I wrote it back in 2002, 2003. And, you know, and I had to kind of accept that I was owning it, that it was, that's what I was writing about. It wasn't, it wasn't really in my consciousness that that's what I was writing about when I put the words down on paper, but it was definitely something that eventually, you know, you have to look back on it and kind of go, actually, of course it is. Of course, when you when you write the line that says, you know, uh, this life I never wanted belongs to someone else as well. Uh, well, there's there's clearly there's clearly responsibilities that I had at that point in time in relation to having children and, and you know, a job, et cetera, et cetera. All of these other things that was stopping me and slowing me down to transition and and that's where I was in my space in my head at the time when I was writing it and clearly, you know, reflecting back on it, then I was writing about myself, but it didn't seem that way when I was putting the words on paper, you know. Um but but yeah, it's it's a it's really it's an interesting place to be able to do and I've always found writing therapeutic in that sense that get everything out and put it on whether it's on I've notebooks going back to nineteen seventies of whether it's you know, poems or songs or even just reflections. Um, I've always tried to keep putting that stuff onto paper. Um, in, otherwise, I'd be holding it in my head, and I'm I'm probably damaged enough without having to to have it held in my head. Like, yeah, I I get that. I I am because I I'm you know I do art. I I'm studying illustration at the moment. Um. I, I, when I was in secondary school, I used to draw these, like, I guess comics of, like, girls. Mm. Of these, well, there was, like, particular characters I had made up. But, like, a few years later, after I started transitioning, I found them. And I was like, 
this character is like me if I was a woman. Like that's like literally what I drew. Like it was like the same color hair, and it was just like mm. the kind of girl I want to be. If you get me, like my transition goals, for want of a better word. And um, it's really weird because it was like I guess maybe it was subconscious or, but there was like it was like I never really. I don't know. It it's it's like I guess maybe it's a way of exploring your gender in a way, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've always said I was talking to somebody earlier today actually about this. I mean, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, even transfusion was was uh, started back seven years ago. You know, it's about trying to, and in a lot of ways, the positive mental health benefits of of being able to express yourself, whether it's in art or whether it's in poetry or songs or drama or, you know, whether it's in paintings um, or even performance, you know, and especially sometimes in performance, being able to express yourself and express your gender identity um, and explore your gender identity in those themes. Because, like, sometimes we, we create ourselves on the page before we create ourselves in reality. Um, and, and I know that... F- for a fact, for myself, as you say, you know, you were creating these comics um, long before you were you were willing to kind of take the steps to consider that this could be your reality. Um, you know, I know for me, I was doing a lot of that in the early, you know, my twenties, my early teens, my late teens, and early twenties, and it was it was this creating this person that I always felt I should be creating. I've looked back through some of my notebooks and looking at you know, what type of person I wanted to be, trying to kind of focus on how I wanted to get there, like what what type of individual that I want, not the person that the, the world saw, but the person I wanted them to see. And Jules, Jill, Jill, did you did you have any kind of thing like that? I'm not I wouldn't I guess it's more some movies for me that I would kind of like connect and watch continuously. Like I used to love watching what was it? I guess like the Adam family when I was a child because I always was like this weird little child who just say things that was about like death and stuff. And I remember when I was younger. I love. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was annoying. I wanted to be like. No one day is great. Called like Thursday and stuff. And it was all like these dark, like angsty little teenage girls or children. I would always be like, oh, I'm kind of like them. Aww. And I would kind of like, I also used to love fairy tales. So I'd be like. Oh, when I get to like twelve, I know I'll just like get a fairy godmother. I'll get to like choose my like proper gender. But then when I found out that's like not the way it goes, I was like, oh no. So I know it's not the same, but like for me, that's the way I would like think, and I would just like pretend. I think that's really interesting too, because it's like Adam's family is kind of like fits into that alternative kind of lifestyle idea that we we're talking about. I know, but then when you think about it, it's just like a very like together family who love each other and who's open and who lets the children express themselves so even thinking about it now I guess it makes more sense that I would want to be like someone who's in that family instead of someone who had to like pretend to be like someone they weren't I guess yeah I get that yeah that's really that's a really uh uh really important kind of reflection because I think that's we, we see I suppose in a lot of these uh, kind of say programs or book comics or even whatever, reflecting what we want as much as, as much as uh, just the enjoyment of it. And you're right. I mean, that is the one theme that goes across the Adams family is that like, it doesn't matter how crazy you are. They all love you for who you are. And that's for some of us, I think that has always been a difficulty that, you know, where we've been afraid to step out into that limelight in case we'll be rejected where actually in that family, you know, rejection isn't, isn't even considered. It's, it's very much about, you know, being part of that family and, and in fact embraced and uh, encouraged even sometimes for your, for your difference and for your diversity. So um, yeah, that's re- that's really cool. It's something I'd never really thought about before, but it's and I feel like I feel like nearly you have like the Simpsons is like nearly the opposite of that, where it's very cis hat and it's like yeah, it's nearly like emphasizing all, especially the early stuff was very much emphasizing what was wrong with them all. Like Homer was so lazy and like they're always fighting and like Bart was causing trouble and all that. Um, and I think that's kind of I don't know. I just think that's kind of a reflection nearly of queer culture and kind of heteronormative culture, I guess, in a way. 
where it's like the Adams family being more queer and being kind of, I feel like a lot of LGBT people are drawn towards. Because I mean, if I go onto my um, Facebook, there's always quotes from my friends from like the Adams family and like mm. they're always talking about like how Morticia and Gomez loved each other so much and like mm. even though they were such weirdos, they were like, kind of the only family on TV where they were like just pure love for each other. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think what you said earlier on when we were talking about the music side of it, I think you you know a lot of for people like us, we we search out those those kind of um, areas that things are on the margins. I think, but definitely, yes, what we tend to find is this total acceptance. You know, we we talk regularly within the community, for instance, about making your own family. You know, creating your own family that we 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 pull together because so many individuals you know, find themselves, uh, you know, separated from their family or um, distant from their family, you know, and, and yet we create these families for ourselves or, and p- our friends and supports around us that that will, to a certain degree, a little bit be like that, like that kind of Adam's family of very different individuals, but yet accepting each other for, uh, you know, um, you know, for accepting accepting us for who we are rather than questioning who we are and that's this just unlimited love and unlimited uh acceptance is is keen or key in our in our uh in our lives like did i know when i was like was it in the early 90s that you went out with a group of trans women did you feel like they were any family when you started to out with them yeah, I mean, I, I, I think definitely when you know it was, it was to be honest with you, it was a big and opening of my eyes even in the early nineties when I was able to get out in the first place. The fact that you could walk on the street of Dublin rather than hiding away mm-hmm. in a bedroom or in a hotel room somewhere wherever I was traveling to. Um, in fact, I'd been out, I'd been out on the streets of other cities in other countries before I'd been out on the streets of Dublin because I was afraid. Uh, to be recognised, afraid to be seen. But, you know, very, very quickly, I found friends that, you know, some of who are still really great friends now today. Um, and, and again, like that, you were accepted for who you were, albeit that there was still, there was a little bit of a pull at that point between, I suppose, two sides to the community. Yeah. Um, those of us who were eventually looking to transition um, and those that part of the community who were identifying uh, either as cross-dresser or transvestite or, or even gender fluid, you know, because there was that, that kind of side of our community was there existing in the early nineties as well. But, but generally I think for me, it was about finding people who understood me. It was about finding a place and a venue that I could go to that wouldn't question me. Um, you know, and I could present myself in whatever way I, I wanted, um, and, and be very honest, that was my puberty. Uh, even though I was in my thirties, that was my puberty. I learned about being who I am more through that period of couple of years than, than probably any other point in my life. Um, because I was questioning everything, um, you know, but nobody else questioned me. And allowed me the space to develop and allowed me the space to express myself. So, and, and also gave me advice and gave me support. And, you know, some of those people, as I said, are still friends today, were there during the rest of the time, you know, outside of those meetings or outside of those social events, I could pick up the phone too, or I could contact and, you know, when things were tough and, and have a chat. So, yeah, I mean, definitely, it was definitely a family and it was definitely critical to my, for my development. It was definitely somewhere that I embraced very, very quickly. And I think, in fact, I think that's the whole point was why it made me very clear that it was something I needed to do as soon as I possibly could was transition. Would they have been more like further along their transition or would they have been like the same like space as you were? And no, not really. Um, you know, because again, a lot of, a lot of those people who were looking to transition, there were very few in those circles at the time. Um, because again, there were, there was very much, it was a moment of, uh, the early nineties was a moment of where there was two specific, um, 
groups of individuals within the trans kind of I won't use community, but within uh, a trans people in Ireland. And there was those who kind of walked that solitary path, who looked for medical support, who looked for psychiatric assessments, who looked for to be uh, what we all now call stealth in society. Uh, some people left the country, went off to England to live in England and get their treatment there or to the States or wherever. Um, but others then were struggling through what was then an emerging gay community or cross-dressing community or trans community. And and for a lot of people looking, especially those, especially me, for instance, you know, I, I at that point in time was married and had a family um, you know, there were clear responsibilities. I had a very high powered job at the time. So, so trying to look out of the end of the tunnel as such, trying to see where that was and how I could transition or how I become myself was always very difficult. So there were a number of one or two people who were further on, but yet some people were only exploring it. And then over those kind of, especially those four or five years, those first four or five years of me being out, you know, I had a very much a mixture of individuals that that kind of came along or you know popped into the into that community or out again because sometimes people would come in to be there for six months full on and then vanish um and you had no contact as to where they were so so yeah I think it's it's a it's a difficult space to kind of try and push one answer to because I think there was a lot so much more to us than that it was much more complicated than that Okay, yeah. yeah. What kind of music would you have listened to at that time? Was it still kind of punk when you were going out or would it be more like 90s music? No, at that point it was it was bands like, uh, it was Riot Girl music, it was bands like Bikini Kill and La Tigra and bands like uh, Nirvana, um, you know, all of those sort of, that sort of kind of grungy sort of sound um for the best part i still was listening to punk you know the older punk because i was still listening to a lot of that but also then because i like a lot of other music you know i have to say there is still the 16 year old girl still stuck in here somewhere because i still like you know uh during the 90s i would have still liked people like kylie and uh you know um the spice girls and madonna and all these sort of things that there is a there's a guilty pleasure in there, which I don't, to my more snobby friends in music, I don't like to admit listening to, but I'm sure if you go through my vinyl or CD racks, you'll feel, feel lots of that. I mean, you know, in, into the 2000s, let's face it, you know, I was a big Avril Lavigne fan of the fact that I was bringing my, my daughter to it and her friends, I was still still enjoying it, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I, I... So she's like pop punk Avril Lavigne, or she used to be at the start of her career... I like the thing. Yeah, it's it's kind of punk, kind of pop punk. It's kind of like it. Yeah, I think people would call it various different things, but it's ultimately it comes down to it's a bit of pop with a bit of yeah edge to it. But that's really what it is, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, for for the nineties, for the best part, like I mean, obviously, if you hang out in in kind of trans circles of the time or the gay circle, gay bars or whatever at the time, it was dance music. It was pop. It was you know you weren't going to be hearing. Nirvana being played, but you know, or or kind of bikini kill or whatever. But you know, depending on what where you went, obviously, because some of the lesbian nightclubs would have played some of that stuff. But um, which I would have hung out in kind of ninety four, ninety five, and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a it's an interesting era because it's again like every other era. It's very mixed and depends on where you you find yourself. Um. So, but within the trans community, it was very poppy and very dancey. But outside of that, I would have still searched out looking for sort of more grungy, punky sort of stuff, you know. But it was kind of the last girl without like the constant need to photograph and like take pictures of everything. But I know as like trans people, you wouldn't, even I don't enjoy being in pictures still. But when in the 90s, it doesn't seem like that was a big thing to take pictures of like all the times you went out like it would in like the following kind of decade no 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 i'm sorry i have to disagree with you there um trans people trans people took millions of pictures in the 90s um the 90s is the point where they start taking a lot of pictures actually okay 
Um, in fact, I have volumes and volumes and volumes of pictures of my own kind of period back then. Um, some which I hope will never see the light of day. <laughs> um, because as I said earlier, uh, you know, my my puberty was in the 90s and like everybody, you know, some of your fashion sense may not be the best. And also you may be a little bit more daring in some of the outfits you might have wore. Um, you know, I might be willing to share them at some point privately and just can have a look through them because they are f- properly booked. You know, they're actually uh, filed in, in fabulous books uh, that I've decided to keep, which is great because I, I was keeping my own archive as much as archiving trans history. But um, but I do know from other people that were there at the time, I do know they were to consistent. Uh, one, one friend of mine who I won't name, I used to call them... Uh, by their name and then here there and every f and where because they used to take so many pictures um it was like i'm here so i took a picture beside this statue in this town i took a picture of us out for a meal tonight and i'll take another picture of us out for a meal the next night and it was what it was in fairness what it was doing was in the way is recording your existence yeah because it took so long to get to that point that you exist, that this person existed. And maybe for some people, that was the only time there was any evidence of you existing because maybe you had to go back to a life that you didn't want to live. Um, you know, so so people did take a lot of pictures. And in fact, there's there was thousands of websites, um, especially Yahoo. There was lots of Yahoo groups um, with people sharing their pictures around, you know, especially in the UK and Ireland. Um, there was constantly like there was, you know, Yahoo group for Irish trans girls, Irish girls who are trans. There was a million of different uh, names of them out there where people shared their pictures. And yeah, there, there's there's a there's a research project there for somebody if they wanted to ever go try find them. But I know I have I have millions of photographs. I know I did when at the time I was um when I was starting to move into transition and I was kind of not really involved in the Gemini club, which was a trans club back in, in uh, closed in 2017. But back in 2004, I know a lot of the photographic stuff that I had that I didn't, didn't include me. I passed over to the Gemini and kind of went, look, you know, this is not my stuff. And a lot of people in these photographs may not want to be, you know, have them out there in the, you know, in the ether somewhere. So I'll give them to you guys for safekeeping. I've asked, are they still in existence or have they been destroyed? But, um, which I really haven't had an answer properly to, but hopefully I will at some point and maybe we can get them back at some stage. But, um, but there are, there is a ton of photographs out there from the 90s and trans people in the 90s. It was the Gemini Club like a real club, I forget, or was it like a space where you would meet and you would be called the Gemini Club? Oh no, the Gemini Club was a real place. Um, there's a there's definitely a history of the Gemini Club that needs to be written. It's it it's a club that was started in 1996 by actually a woman um, by the name of Bernie who passed away only a week ago. Actually, oh, oh. Um, it was. Um, it was carried on for the most part by a woman by the name of Natalie Conroy, who you'll find on, on Facebook under and still runs a Facebook page for Gemini. Um, but it was, and, and Natalie ran it on her own and with the help of various different individuals, including myself for a while, um, for nearly 21 years. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful, madcap, decadent, uh, space, safe space for people to go to. Um, there was some changing areas in it. There was a bar. There was lots of different events going on. Um, you know, whether it was, um, we would have music nights and Irish nights and girls nights in and, um, uh, kind of karaoke nights and quiz nights. And there was so much going on in the Gemini for so many years. But, but also, it, there's all these madcap stories that come out of it that that really need to be told at some point in the future. Um, you know, I've written a small piece recently for GCN, and hopefully, it'll get published now that they're back up and running again. Um, just a kind of a two page, or just to kind of give an idea of it. But there's really something needs to be written in a much broader way um, about Gemini. But it was it was a it was a golden space in a golden era that that I think people. 
really nowadays need to be need to know about it because again for young trans people there are no there's very few of those sort of safe spaces uh that you know you co go and socialize and entertain yourselves and find different things to do and i think that is that is key something that needs to be done within or for our community over the next while yeah there isn't really any kind of space i feel that's like just social i mean i know tenny has groups but they're a bit more um, kind of support, right? The more support groups. And there's like belong to, but that's for younger people as well. Yeah. I feel like if you're, you know, a bit older and you're just looking to go out and socialize and like dance or something, there's not a lot of places nowadays to really, that I know of anyway, that are on my radar. Yeah, no, you're you're really looking at probably into the wider LGBT community and therefore going to some of the bars or or going to the odds, you know, the, the, some of the events that we've run. I know, I know. In the in the since since Tenny has opened up the community space, and there's a limited am, amount of things that can be done in that because it's not a it's not open to being able to have yeah. you know really loud music or a lot of noise or you know uh, even even it's questionable about even you know putting a lot of alcohol in there or whatever. But the the they we we have I know in Tenny and and I know Lilith Carol has tried to. Last year, tried to open up quite a lot of different events, and hopefully they will continue. Whether it's you know film nights or uh, music nights or get-togethers, but I think yeah, we we were actually talking me and Lilith about opening the crafting kind of group because I you know I'm mad into crafting, yeah. making things. But um, then of course 2020 hit, and we've all been stuck inside our yeah. houses. But I mean, I and I do think I do think there is a huge need for for social events. I think that was critical to my own. Uh, coming out i think it was critical to a lot of my friends coming out that there were uh spaces to you know go and socialize to meet to express yourself to be yourself that you feel comfortable that you feel safe and and to be honest with you to also make your mistakes because you know to be able to have that kind of environment where you know you're safe and yet you know you have people around you who are not going to be critical or not going to be questioning but also will be there to support you. I think that is that is really crucial uh, for a lot of our young people today because what's happening is they're coming out and all of a sudden it's it's jumping from one experience straight into another. Mm. And there is no kind of, I suppose, support mechanism in there other than physically literally going into a support group and you're sitting talking. There has to be some sort of social outlets that 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 thing i feel like a support group is more just about talking and kind of like it's it's not as much about going out and having that chance to make mistakes like you were saying like to socially actually engage people and yeah i mean to nearly have that lived experience yeah i know and i mean look no. i don't think i don't think the social group the social or sorry support group has to be just that either and i do know you know as i say that the uh the facilitators over the last two years have been trying to do uh, some social stuff. I know back when I was facilitator, we used to do quite a lot of social stuff. We would do, you know, 10 pill bowling. We would go for picnics in the park. We would do film nights. We would do music nights, whatever. And I know, you know, Lilith has in, in as national development officer has tried to, you know, instill some of that into the support group and into the facilitators. And they have been trying, I think, in the past, the opportunities weren't necessarily there to do it, but I think and COVID, as you say, has caused a huge problem for a lot of us. Oh, yeah. But I do think it is yeah. it is good, and but it also needs to be supported. People need to turn up to do it because it's it's really um, yeah you know kind of disheartening that if you're putting an event on and you end up with three or four people sitting there. Now, that's not to say that it's not valid for those three or four people, but you know if you're trying to put a lot of effort in and put something on and try and you know, organize something and then you're not getting the response. And yet then people are saying that we need these spaces. That is kind of disappointing and it's kind of disheartening and it, it kind of makes you think, well, maybe I won't um, organize something, you know. And But but I do think people are trying and people are trying to kind of bring something out. And I do know there are there's plenty of lots, a lot of initiatives out there. And I think COVID has just knocked that back. I think I because think like it, it's such a small country, you know, we're only going to have, it's it's very hard to get like a large group together in the first place. And you kind of need that like basic weekly group of like 
the same people who you know will show up every time or whatever. You know, like that consistent numbers so that when new people join, yeah, they have people to kind of form bonds with. Because if you're if you're only coming out and you're joining this group and there's only like three people at it, or if like you know, God forbid, you're the only person who arrives, it's it's just this very isolating mm. experience, which I've definitely had in the past. Yeah, and I and I think that is that is crucial to to something you know, and I I think I've spoken this on a number of times about. You know, some of the work for arguments, like with even what you guys are doing about not just ex- in doing, focusing on your own experience, but also reaching back into some some of the older activists and trying to get the perspective from from them as to where things were for them, but also where they are for now. I think, yeah, you know, and it doesn't have to be when I say older, I don't mean have to be kind of my age, but even people who are like only 10 years older than you or or 15 years older than you, you know, about reaching out and including them in those conversations, but also in those spaces, because actually it means that people then, you know, uh, learn from those experiences. I think the big problem for our community sometimes is that, and I know this from my own experience, is that we we strive to to get into this family, to create this family, to be part of it. We strive to get to true transition, whether it's medical or not. But we strive to go through that. But we're also very quick to jettison that family to kind of go, okay, I've done it now. You've been there. Great. And I'm leaving. And and you go off and you set up your own little bubble and you've got your own little family. And that that's great because it's it's basically what we should be, what life should be about. But sometimes, you know, coming back in and sharing your experience and, and having that kind of... Uh, you know, being part of that family again sometimes, even if it's only to us to want a better put away coming home from Australia for Christmas, you know, just that experience of being uh, part of your family and, and showing those younger people coming in. And I'm, I'm using the word younger, not necessarily in the sense of, of age. I'm talking about people who've now just relatively kind of have only just come out, yeah. you know, being able to hear these people who have already gone and done it and explained it and, you know, experienced it actually has huge benefits for every one of us. That's what benefited me. You know, it's benefited so many people hearing other uh, members of our family coming back or even being there to actually share their experience. And, you know, I think that that is even that is critical within social spaces as much as it is, whether it is in these sort of talks or whether it is in, um, you know, um activist spaces or lobbying spaces or you know even reading about people but even just hanging out you know you know i've i've learned so much from you two uh you know over the last what now two years i think since since you started the the i think it's two years ago you started the the first project um you know and i've learned so much because i've learned so much what it's like for to be your age as a trans person in Ireland from both of you. And I think that is critical for all of us. It's about learning about our family. It's about learning what it is to be trans now. And I think we all can benefit from that, not to walk away and just, you know, go and live our lives of our own accord. I think it's very much about learning from each other. That That is kind of, well, I, I mean, can I talk about my own experience recently? From I am, um, so I started college. And I, obviously, I'm going as a woman, but yes, this like I haven't experienced any transphobia. Like no one has brought anything up to me. So as far as I know, I'm stealth at the moment, for want of a better word. And it's mm-hmm. a very odd experience because it's like I have been in these trans spaces for the past, I don't know, maybe four or five years, or these LGBT spaces, and I've been kind of you know, trying to get comfortable with myself and get comfortable wearing women's clothes out and develop the confidence and stuff. And now I guess I'm at that stage and I am living as a woman. And it, it's very, I don't know, how, I don't know what word to use, but it, it's like. Well, can I, can I, can I ask you a question? Go on. Would, would, would that, would that feeling be a little bit about that because you feel that you're in stealth and because you feel that people are just accepting you for who you are that maybe you are questioning the fact that maybe you're not necessarily feeling comfortable that you're not being yourself not that not that 
uh, you're not being yourself, you are, but it's just that other people may not be seeing you as you see yourself. In other words, that you're a trans woman rather than necessarily just another woman in in college. Like, is there, is there a fear that maybe somebody might kind of go, oh, hang on, you're trans? I like, think that's part of it. You know what, actually, I'm thinking, I think it's because I can't be open about, well, I, I suppose I could, but I choose not to be open about my experiences being yeah. trans. Like, I haven't... I haven't talked to them about, you know, doing this, the Sterling's mm. ratting, because I am afraid that if I bring that stuff up, I might experience transphobia, or mm. even just people might treat me differently, you know, or start asking questions that aren't comfortable for me. Yeah, and I, I, I said this to somebody who I spoke to recently, and I've been connected with since July, a, a trans woman who transitioned in the early 90s, and, and I have always wanted to talk to. But, uh, yeah, so... so I think for me, um, she she was saying that like for a long time, th- there was a huge strain on her mental health around having to ensure that she kept this secret um, and that people didn't find out that she was trans, that she did not want people to know this because she was always felt that it was going to, um, you know, have a different reflection on who she is, um, you know. And and she never wanted that experience because she wasn't sure whether or not that would be a negative experience. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, so I think it 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 creates a, a it creates a a pressure on you that that maybe the feeling of you just being yourself, whether that means that people know you're trans or not trans, is probably what you're tro- you're trying to strive towards Russ, uh you know what I mean yeah I think I think that's really kind of you're kind of hitting the nail on the head there because um like we were talking you're like you know about JK Rowling no I mean let's not get into that because let's keep things a bit more positive but it came up about her transphobia and I was kind of sitting there like I have specific feelings about this and I have like all these you know experiences and my experience with my friends and I didn't feel comfortable about talking about that stuff because, I I mean I don't know how people would start treating me. Yeah. You know, cause my my group they're all cis people as far as I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. No, and and that is that is that's a really great point because I think, I think for a lot of us, you know, there is a choice. I know I know for me. It was a major decision that I made back, you know, in 2004 that, um, you know, when I was when I was transitioning and I was 2003 when I was deciding right now, this is look, I can't just let this go any longer. Um, you know, I think it was a very clear decision for me that no matter what happens, I was not going to take steps to be stealth in stealth that no matter what happened, what I was struggling you know, to do for a long time was rather than trying to be something else, I was trying to not, I wasn't trying to be me. I remember a good friend of mine said that to me back very early on that she had tried to transition in the early 80s and, you know, she went off to London, uh, like she was in her early 20s and she went off to London. By the time she got to London, she was presenting as female and, you know, she went and got herself a job and an apartment and, you know, she changed her name and everything and she for the period of time that she was in London, you know, she wasn't out as trans. She was out, she was there living as a woman, but she had felt all of this pressure that somebody was going to find out at some point and she was always going to have a problem with it, that they were going to have a problem with it. And then in reality that when she eventually, this this kind of mental uh, block continually ate away at her, to the extent that while nobody actually ever found out that she was trans, it just got so much pressure built up in her that she just decided to give up and she came home and and just went back to living uh, as a guy. And it took her nearly 20 years more before she ever got around to transitioning, you know, and and so much so much things went under it. But actually what she realized was that what she said, and these were her words, was that she failed in in back in the eighties? Not because she wasn't trans, not because she didn't feel she was a woman. It was because she was trying to be somebody that she wasn't. She wasn't trying to be herself. 
she was trying to be this perfect uh as she saw it, this perfect uh perfection of of being a woman and therefore being quiet and demure and if you knew this woman you know she's not quiet and demure um yeah you know but but that she clearly wasn't being herself see i think the thing as well for me is in my experience i'm not pretending to be someone i'm not it's just, it's more just that i'm not uh it, it's me like i'm not lying i'm just not saying what actually is happening if you get me yeah no but you've that that's circumstances that you find yourself in that's not something that you've yeah deliberately put into but also you know your subconscious has made a decision that for safety perspective or for comfort perspective it's better not to get into it yeah i think that for that you know for it so you know for me that's what's that's what's important it's it's about you living your life as comfortably as you can so we make decisions absolutely you know at various points to our life um that i don't believe i would ever question anybody on i you know you know if if you i know friends of mine who you know always believe they should transition they've been another you know, gone and got diagnosed and all of this sort of stuff but but ultimately they've made decisions that for whatever reason they can't transition and can't they so therefore they live their lives partially in one gender and they live their lives partially in another gender and they strive to to kind of create a balance within their life because of that i I would never question their right to do that or i would never question uh you know why they would do that or even whether their you know their validity as a trans person or a validity of them as a man or a woman or somebody who's non-binary because ultimately for me it's about making your life as comfortable as possible and sometimes those are short-term decisions and sometimes they're longer-term decisions and in your case i you know i would agree with you you know right now it's more comfortable for you not to get in to those conversations and if that's what suits then that's what's suits you yeah but if it is if you are more comfortable for you know coming out and questioning it then to me that's what you do but it's it's your decision and it's it's what you feel comfortable with you know what i mean i I feel like it's not very easy within a kind of straight space to just be like hey i'm trans like yep i like i just it's it's a very kind of hard thing to segue into to kind of bring it up um jules do you have any thoughts on that well like with COVID, it's obviously I'm not like employed right now. And I finished college a while ago. So when I was in college, I didn't like come out as trans because it was a really small group. And I just felt like I didn't get along with any of them really. And I was like, let's just get through this and get out was kind of my thought about it. And then when I was out, I was like, I have to just for myself because I don't even see myself living any longer or than I like was pretty much like as a man or as a, I don't know what the right way to say that is but then so I don't really have that much experience with like having to be stuck because like people obviously are like they see me and I still pretty much present as a man but just because my own comfort I just don't love my body so I don't even love picking out clothes or anything and it's just it's just, I'm in a weird space, I guess. And I'm like, yeah. I love you. But when I get, like, on phone calls, people are like, what up, girl? Well, they don't say girl, but, yeah. like, I feel taken as a woman. So it's like, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, I know, but sometimes they do sound like a baby, so I'm sorry to people who are listening to this. If you're like, who's that baby speaking? I'm like, <laughs> I'm 24, okay. Yeah, I mean, your voice is mm. amazing. I love your voice. But you, but you don't need to apologize for that. And I mean, I think, I think, and that I think is the the whole point is about getting, getting for, and this goes back to both of you. I think it's about getting to, trying to get to a point in your life where you're not apologizing for your existence or even for whatever is, uh, you know. And I mean, you know, your your voice is is excellent and it's you know and i've had these i know alexandra was uh joking earlier about not knowing each other but you know I've, we've had these conversations before about you know to a certain degree loving yourself a little bit you know i think and and i think that is that that is a difficult thing to do by the way it's you know and it's a struggle for most trans people to get to that point of of making sure that you can uh 
you can love yourself before anything else. I know for me, it took a long time. I remember a line that I, I wrote in something or other that, you know, I, I said it took me 30s. I was apologizing for my existence for 37 years. I wasn't going to do it any longer, um, you know, and I was answering to other people's needs rather than my own. And I wasn't going to do it any longer. So I think it, it the struggle for us is always about trying to start the work on loving ourselves and loving who we are and and whatever changes we need to make, taking the steps to make them. But, but you know, it's about there's lots of people out there absolutely love you. And, you know, I think that's that's kind of uh, what's really important is to kind of own that a little bit. And realize maybe actually, well, if they can love me, so can I, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm not talking about specifically, it's all of us, you know, so, um, it's about getting to that stage that of trying to, trying to make sure that we are who we are, but we're not necessarily always going to be apologetic for it either. I guess I was just going to ask, like, cause sometimes it can be difficult to love yourself and then you feel like, you can like hurt other people in that process and not even intentionally. Like, how do you kind of do that? I know that's a very heavy question. <laughs> oh, uh, well, no, no, I, 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 I appreciate that. I under, and, and it's a very important question. It's an unbelievably important question because, because, you know, and I, I know for me, um, and, and in a lot of ways, and I, you know, I can only talk about myself a lot of these times because for for individuals, sometimes it's very different. It also need you need to speak to the circumstances. You need to speak to who you're talking about, what your circumstances are. But I do think I do think it's it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to love other people if you can't love yourself. That's going to be the first thing, I think. But but I also think that it's about trying to bring them along. I know for me it was critical for me through my transition and through my uh, life that I brought my, you know, family along with me and specifically my children. That meant compromise, I have to admit, for me, uh, compromises that other people might not be willing to do. But for me, it was about compromise. It was about making decisions that actually I need my children, for to be honest with you, to be at a certain age before I started to kind of talk to them about these things. Uh, but also to be at a certain age before they started to experience my transition in a way. Um, you know, with my with my family, it was very much similarly. It was there was lots of conversations going on with my mother, especially and my dad, and my sis. My sister was just took it like, you know, really like there was no problem. Was she switched from one to the other very quickly, um, which was great. But but I do think for me, it was a lot of compromise, and sometimes you shouldn't have to compromise. But that's a decision that you need to weigh up. And I would say there's a lot of soul searching, a lot of thought process involved. It's not an easy decision. It's not an easy conversation that you can have. But if you can get some sort of support through it, uh, that's with somebody you can trust um, to have these conversations about how you take these steps, um, that I think would be the first step is to be able to be able to vocalize your concerns with somebody who, as I say, you trust and who can give you some advice, but advice that you're still going to have to make decisions on about how you take the next steps each time. Um, but I do think, you know, you can go the full way of kind of going, this is me, this is what I'm doing. I want this for myself. And you take sometimes take those risks because despite what we think, there should be unconditional love from family, but a lot of the times there's not. Um, and it and it is a very difficult space to be in and there's no quick answer to any of it. Yeah, I know. I don't want to like, put you on the spot, but I just wanted to ask you that and I'm glad we got to like record it. No, I, I think that is, it. it is a really, really important question and I don't think I would want to be saying oh, I know. that it's not a difficult decision. And every trans person, I think, no matter whoever has ever existed has pondered that question um, because people who we love and people who love us are so important in our lives. Um, sometimes it gets to a point where you have to say, this is not going to happen. And you go and you rebuild your own family with other people. And we find 
families out there that that will love us and you know will create that space for us to be ourselves but that is that is the 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 point where you know you have to make that decision but you can put a lot of effort in in the in the in the before that um to try and see if there's something but there's there's a point where if it's not working you have to make decisions for yourself because ultimately it's your life it's your existence and you know you are somebody who can be loved and will be loved and is loved and you know your life is precious so i think we need to find space to be able to get people to support that and whether that is your you know biological family or friends or you know the friends that you've created in your early life or whether it's a new family or a new life you know let's face it like you know yeah your sister is on this podcast here doing interviewing me which you you know i mean so kind of like yeah it's uh it's about building those and i have those i have to admit even though i've been very very lucky to have brought most of my family along with me um i've lost some friends through it all but you know i've been lucky to bring along my family with me and i I, they've struggled and they've had their times but i've tried to allow the space there for them for to be able to come along as well and I don't always have the answer either, I'm afraid. <laughs> but thank you. And Sarah, I think as much like I think we think of you as family as well. Like you've been with us for so long and you've been such a support. Like I always come to you and I'm like, I have a problem with my my endocrinologist again. It was wonderful. Oh yeah, it's good. But Sarah, that that was a really lovely bit and I think we have to end it there on that note. It was a great note. Yep, listen, thank you. And um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and it's it's wonderful to get an opportunity to talk about lots of different things with you guys it's always a, a pleasure yeah it was absolutely great um if people if people want to check i i'm sure the links to social media will be uh somewhere around uh twitter facebook instagram follow us if you like uh thank you so much i'm alexandra this is the conversation podcast goodbye